Hello and welcome to Recovery Corner, where we introduce you to those who are making a difference to help people navigate the road to recovery. I'm Thomas Becker with AverHealth, and today we're speaking with Michelle Hart, a trainer and facilitator in the areas of supervision, juvenile and adult probation, and treatment courts. Michelle is a former deputy chief of probation in Coconino County, Arizona, and today serves as a trainer and consultant to implement best practices in the field. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a basic question, and and you recently um, participated in a webinar with us, so uh, we'll we'll kind of refer back to that as well. But the basic question is this: What are case plans, and why are they important for clients and those working in treatment courts, probation, and supervision? Good question. So I like to think of case plans as the the roadmap for supervision and behavior change. Um, it is a is way to collaborate with our clients or our participants and let them know that we're on the same page, trying to reach the goals that not only the court may have for them, but to show them that how they often really align with their own goals. Um, often people who come into the system, they still have goals in their lives. Like they don't necessarily want to be in the system, um, in the criminal justice system. They just, they have made mistakes or have gone um, on a path that unexpected. And this is a way for us to put it on paper and make a roadmap. But then more, more into the weeds of it, it's a way that we can put it in, formalize and identify goals and then how to meet those goals. Um, oftentimes our clients, they know what they want, they just don't know how to get there. And then of course we have to think about those things that the court wants them to do, but how do we make that so that they align with each other and we have a way to measure success. And so that's kind of like a big overview of what a case plan can do and should be doing. In your recent webinar with us, which was called Case Plans, One Size Does Not Fit All, you mentioned a model uh, to create a case plan called SMART, which means setting goals that are specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound. This is a great model uh, for, for a lot of strategic thinking, but can you kind of walk us through those elements and how that relates to uh, the probation field? Absolutely. So anytime any of us, whether we're on probation or just trying to change our own behavior and habits, we have to have kind of that roadmap or way to break it down into bites that we can actually accomplish. And like I mentioned in the last question, we have to also be able to identify success and um, be able to make those markers in success so that, that we can incentivize behavior. And so using um, the, that SMART system into how to develop goals and um, understand how the, they are to be met and to move forward, it's a great way to, to just break it down, so specific. So we, have, we can't have these big picture lofty things like you're going to be successful on probation, right? That's just too big. And what does that mean? So we have to break it down to specific needs that are met. And so um, things that are identified that we want to change or work on. And so what's the specific goal that someone has? And I like to make an analogy to um, a specific goal that I think everyone in the world at one point in their life can relate to, and that's weight loss, right? And yeah. so to say that I want to lose um, 
you know, 50 pounds to be healthier, that's, that's great, but that's a little too big. Like if I constantly look at that as the, the goal, it'll be overwhelming. So we want to break it down and specifically um, to what I want to do. So maybe it's, I want to lose five pounds, right? Cause then I can have success. And so make it more specific and then measurable is a way to measure that success or when you complete that goal. And so the five pounds is, is a little bit easier to break down and swallow versus the 50 that might be the big overall goal or the overarching goal of, I just want to be healthier. Um, then we move on to attainable. Is it possible? So, Sometimes we get confused on between the attainable and realistic. They're not really quite the same. Attainable is, is it truly a possible for this person to attain or achieve this goal? It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but they have the ability to it. It might be challenging. It might be hard, but they truly have the ability. Realistic means that they have the supports, the tools, the things in, in step um, or in place to be able to meet that goal. And so it might not be realistic to say that I want to lose 75 pounds versus that 50, right? Because maybe that's just my body's never going to get there. Um, that's not healthy. Or if we were to break it into an education type goal. So I want to get a doctorate in philosophy. Well, my brain doesn't even work that way in philosophy. So to be able to say that that's a goal, but I also haven't completed my GED, right? And so that might not be realistic. And so we need to really make sure that we're not discouraging these bigger goals, but breaking them down in a way that's attainable and realistic. Um, and then the last one's time bound. We also want to make sure that there is a time frame associated with each goal or action step so that um, there is that accountability factor, right? Because we are still in the criminal justice system and that the court has some expectations. But more importantly for me, it's a way to, to go back and measure that success. Um, behavior change. It's throughout many science uh, studies, you know, from our early behavioral scientists say that, you know, incentivizing behavior, especially in our higher risk, higher need population is the way to um, affect behavior change. And so be able to incentivize when these smaller steps or smaller goals are met. So that drives them to want to move on to the next one. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, so it's good advice, I think, for, for any type of, uh, of, of goal in life. Um, turning over to, uh, just, you know, we know that probation community uh, supervision officers, they work hard. There's a lot going on. They, they have to deal with so many factors out there. Uh, when they're putting together these case plans, uh, there are a number of risk assessments uh, they, they have to consider. What are some of these? Right. So that's a good question. So let me break it down this way. So every risk or every case plan, excuse me, should be based on a risk assessment. And there are several um, out there in the country that can be used and it depends on what your agency has um, picked, but you wanna make sure it's validated and norm to the population in your community. And so some examples are the COMPASS, the LSCMI, the ORAS, the OST. So that's your risk assessment. And what that risk assessment is going to do is identify the criminogenic needs for that individual. What areas that if we specifically target in a strategic way will bring down their risk to recidivate 
and also improve their overall ability to um, just be more successful in life and, and be able to complete their obligations to the criminal justice system and then hopefully not come back. You know, that's that recidivism piece. And so when we look at our risk assessments results, regardless of which one your agency uses, um, they're going to identify ideally um, which criminogenic uh, factors are the ones that we want to target. And generally in the criminal justice world, there are eight that we tend to look for. And those eight are um, the history of antisocial behavior. So that's your criminal history. That's a static factor. Now it's something that we can't necessarily change, but it's important to know so that because you know that sometimes we say the best predictors of future behaviors, past behaviors. So we wanna know um, that hist criminal history. But then the ones that we can target that are um, dynamic, that if we target them, we can have effect on change and make those risk scores go down in these specific areas um, are the next seven. So antisocial personality traits, those are things like impulsivity, um, deceitfulness, um, lack of remorse, kind of those um, person it's not necessarily a diagnosed personality trait, but those antisocial personality traits that, that our, our folks can have. Um, the next one is criminal thinking. So um, that can break down into maladaptive thought patterns, um, justifying or beliefs that help them engage or continue to engage in criminal behaviors. Uh, another one, the next one is criminal associates. So if you've heard uh, people talk about, you know, the best way for someone, especially in who's trying to seek recovery, we need to change people, places, and things. And that's why and knowing who their associates are. So having those criminal associates is something we need to target and help them find um, better uh, influences in their life. And then the other four are substance abuse, um, school or work, uh, family and marital associations, what is their family history, what are significant other relationships look like, and then just generally a lack of pro-social activities or a lack of purpose. Um, these last four that I mentioned, I also like to consider these protective factors. So if someone has really strong areas in, in these, um, then they help start building that recovery capital um, for when they're no longer with us and have those supports in place. So we want to either really reduce the first four, right? So that I mentioned the criminal history, the antisocial personality traits, the criminal thinking, the criminal associates. But then if they score in these other four areas, the substance abuse, family, marital, work, school, um, and pro-social activities or, or purpose, we want to build those up. So if we're noticing deficits in those areas, those are the ones we want to build up instead of reduce. Well, that makes sense. And, you know, so much has changed uh, over the years in, in all of this. So I'd like to delve into what has changed and is changing in, in case management. How were, were cases managed in the past and what do probation officers need to do today sort of to adapt to the new thinking, new science, new evidence-based practices? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, I spent almost 20, 28 years working in probation. And from the day I started to the day I retired, it, it, it definitely there's been a lot of changes. And so, you know, that risk assessment that I mentioned, so it could be the Compass, the ORAS, um, different tools that we have around the country. Um, that used to be result, uh, a result that would be just used to um, determine your supervision level. How many times am I going to have to make sure I go see this individual in the community or in my office just to make my benchmarks in supervision? 
and are they going to be low, medium, or high, right? And now we use that risk assessment to develop our um, case plans. So we know which uh, interventions we need to apply and where we need to really help and support our individuals. And then something else I think that we didn't used to think about in our risk assessments and the results is what things do they have in place that are already successful? Um, a lot of times we think about this risk assessment and just finding the things where the deficits are, but we can also find their strengths. And um, one of the things we also used to not do is share that, that risk assessment with our participants or our clients. We would just do the assessment, put it in a file. We would know how many times a month we have to see this person and then kind of leave it be. But we, it's a really it's a it's a tool that's meant to be used um, depending on the actual risk assessment and it's uh, designed for how often to be have it reassessed. It could be every six months or every year. It starts to help paint that picture of is what we're doing working? Um, has that uh, score gone down in those areas? And so other things we used to focus on in the, many years ago was just monitoring core compliance. It was a very reactive field. So you're on probation or you're in my treatment court and um, we just wanna make sure you're following with the court orders and then we'll respond when we, when necessary, when you've had a, a violation or misstep. And really that that is not helpful. We have to be proactive. And so we use these risk assessments, we build these case plans to help um, identify why these behaviors are happening and start putting interventions in place so that we can um, help them with changing their thinking patterns, changing who they're spending their time with, um, building up those supports in those areas that are de deficits. And so that kind of leads me to the principle of risk need responsivity. Mm -hmm. um, and so making sure we also apply these right. Sometimes we used to think one size fits all, and that's not the case at all. So we, once we have those domains, we need to do another step to figure out why. Because somebody who has criminal thinking, let's just say, they're two different people may have the same score, but the underlying driver for that criminal thinking could be something completely different. So when we identify um, the, these different domains and how we're going to um, intervene, it's really important to um, understand the driving force, the driver behind that behavior or those thoughts. So one area that I think is a really easy way to make examples is that criminal thinking. So especially in our high-risk um, population, criminal thinking tends to be one of those areas we need to apply an intervention. But if we don't know the driver, it's not one size fits all. And then we used to do that. We used to just apply all the same kind of interventions for everybody and think that that was gonna work. And so um, for someone who has the area of criminal thinking identified as one of their higher um, domains that needs to be addressed, we want to know the why behind it. And so some examples of differences, it could be that um, one person is a proactive thinker. They're planning things out. They are savvy and they can um, see the cost benefit analysis of what behaviors they're choosing to engage in and making that decision to say, yep, this is worth it for me. I'm going to take this risk where somebody else might be a reactive thinker. Um, we've all had those uh, clients come in and you ask them why they did something and they're like, I don't know. And that's a true thought, right? They really didn't know. And so we're gonna treat those two individuals differently in the sense of what, how we're going to help them identify their thoughts. And so 
Um, one thing that I that I have implemented with my officers in the last you know several years is how do we find out those drivers? Um, and having a simple conversation with our participants or clients doesn't always help with that. And there is a tool out there that I think is an excellent adjunct to creating case plan, and it's called a behavioral analysis. And if you want, we can talk in talk briefly into what that means and what a behavioral analysis is. Well, yeah, and I was thinking because one of my questions would be, you know, how can our listeners get started in creating an effective outcomes oriented case plan? And if this is a way to, to get to that question, that'd be great. Absolutely. So first thing you want to do is, of course, when you're starting to build a case plan is have that risk assessment and find out um, where uh, areas of those criminogenic domains um, should be addressed. But, you know, there it used to be that we would just say, oh, these are the areas that score the highest. Let's just tackle them. And that doesn't necessarily always serve our participants or our clients really well because maybe that is the highest area, but that isn't getting to what's driving the behavior. And so what I like to do is have um, officers or case managers, whoever's completing these case plans, complete a behavioral analysis with our with their um, participant or client. And the behavioral analysis is one of those core correctional um, practices. You can find it in different curriculums like EPICS, um, STICS, things like that. And basically it's the same um, exercise. And so what it's meant to do is to identify the triggers in behaviors. And then when you get the full behavioral analysis complete, you'll start to see patterns. And then you can use that to start discussing strengths and challenges um, with the participant because then they're the ones seeing the patterns as well. Um, and so what it does is you, when you have one of the, uh, it's a worksheet, and you start with them and you ask them to um, think back to the last five times they were either arrested or engaged in similar behavior, whether they got caught or not. And then up front, you have to make sure that they know that this is an exercise to help them identify the best ways to help them create their goals and strategies for change, that it's not meant to um, get them in trouble by any means. It's a truly an exercise. And so... You start out with asking for every behavior. You start out with, well, what did you do? What happened? And so something similar, something easy to just get the um, uh, idea of what this is. is So they would say, okay, I got a DUI or I drove drunk. That's the what I did do. And then you go back and then you start to, to break it down. So what was the, when did this happen? What day? What time of the week? What time of the evening? What, when did this occur? Um, then the next question is, well, who was with you before and during this event that, which was we're always referring to the, for this event of what did you do? So I was drinking, I drove under the influence. Um, and then the next question is, where were you? Um, and then the last thing is, what were you thinking, feeling right before this happened? And so they answer all these questions for five different events, arrests, behaviors, um, and, and then they review it and they start to see patterns. Oh, every time I'm with, with Joe, I end up feeling angry or I make poor decisions or I end up at the bar, you know, and then, they, then we can start building strategies around those um, patterns to help break down those criminal thinking patterns 
um, and identify those folks or people, places, and things, because it comes back to that. That's a common thing that we hear all the time, and folks that are trying to um, experience recovery is changing people, places, and things. And then the last um, thing for that they answer for every um, event is what were the consequences, because we want them to see that too. It's like sometimes those consequences are um, criminal justice related, but oftentimes they can identify things that aren't criminal justice related that are just as important that they want to be able to avoid in the future as well. And I know that's a lot to uh, to take in maybe uh, from, from a podcast, but I do encourage folks to visit everhealth.com, click on webinars, and uh, Michelle did a great job in a recent webinar kind of outlining that with some visuals and some planning tools to help you create a great case plans. A final question, uh, Michelle, we know that substance use disorder plays a large role in creating case plans, as you've alluded to. Uh, why is drug testing so crucial when it comes to individual case plans? That That is a great question. I know I've said that for a couple of your questions, but th- they all are great. But yeah, it is absolutely important because it is that outside measure that success is happening. So I know oftentimes, and this can relate back to your other question about what we did differently. And, you know, oftentimes our supervision, like I said, was reactive instead of proactive. And we want to have that validation and verification that change is happening. And drug testing is an, is an essential piece of that, not only for supervision, but for treatment as well. We want to know that they're in the right level of care. And if we don't know if they're, if they truly discontinued use or switch substances, um, then we're not really being able to help them to our fullest. Um, oftentimes, uh, I've had clients and participants say that that is something also that is a tool that they use. So if they're still struggling with their people, places, and things, and the the ability to refuse or say no to people, um, they can use it as a an excuse, you know, until they're strong enough to be able to say no, I just don't use anymore. To say no, man, I, I can't. I got a drug test, and you know, I I, I don't want to end up back in jail, so I, I can't do that with you today, or can't hang with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, to, so it gives them that other extra factor that they can use until they become really comfortable and strong in their recovery to be able to actually change that associate or be able to tell that associate, I don't do that anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, Michelle, I, we appreciate uh, you coming on Recovery Corner. Uh, as always, uh, thank you for your insights and your thought leadership. Uh, and again, I encourage our listeners to uh, check out your webinar where you went into an hour long plus detail of this. I appreciate you summarizing uh, this very uh, important topic here on Recovery Corner. Thank you very much.